Okay, if you guys have your Bibles with you, all right, um, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Once you get into the New Testament, keep flipping past the Gospels. Once you get to Hebrews, slow down a little bit. And then once you get to James, slow down even more. It's right after that. So maybe by a show of like hands or something, people get there. Thumbs up, maybe. Where are we going? First Peter. First Peter, one, one. Okay, that's good enough. Okay, we're going to read from verses 1 to 12. I'll read aloud, then I'll pray, then we'll look at it. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to, or it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, just come before you tonight. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to just be together and um, just be in your word, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would give me the words of the Holy Spirit to speak um, truth tonight. And I ask that you would reveal to us and help us to better understand this living hope that is talked about so richly in these verses. Amen. Okay, so you may or may not know this about me. It's kind of a weird thing, but I really, 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 really like the 2011 hit film Rango. Don't know why. I don't know what it is about it, but it's just like something about it. I don't know, just it's encapsulating to me. Um, but you don't need to know anything about the plot of Rango. All you need to know is that it takes place in this town called Dirt. And basically, Rango, who's Johnny Depp in lizard form, goes to this town when he gets lost and abandoned kind of from his family or whatever. And he gets stuck in this town called Dirt. And the only thing you need to know about this place is that it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a land surrounded by desert. And it's just full of a bunch of sad people. And it's just kind of a miserable place. And... Um, 
there's a lack of water, which is kind of what the whole plot is sort of driven around, is finding uh, more water and stuff. And so basically, once Rango accidentally does some heroic things, he goes to meet the mayor, and the mayor says this to him. He says, do you know how they make it through each and every day? They believe. They believe it's going to be better. They believe that the water will come. Now, all this Rango stuff aside, the point is, if you call yourself a Christian, then that means that you have been born again to a living hope that is far greater than water. See, these people, they navigated through this difficult time because they believed that, that eventually the water would come. So although hope seemed low and although time seemed hard, they kept going and they kept working and they kept just surviving because they believed it would get better. But see, our hope is actually living and it's a much greater hope. And it's a hope that when you look around the world, it, it, it makes all these oxymorons. It doesn't make any sense because you look at starving nations of Christian people and you see them rejoicing. And you see, you see orphans that feel a stronger fatherly love because of this living hope than any earthly father could ever give them. You see a hope in, in people, in Christians, that, that somehow puts a smile on their face even though they're being martyred or killed for what they believe. And the only way to endure suffering is to see subsequent glory. The only way to get through a difficult time or a difficult period of trial and hardship is to see sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, right? In the people of dirt, it was uh, seeing this possibility of water in the future. But for us, it's this idea of salvation. It's this idea of being born again into something that is living. So as Christians, we are born again to a living hope. And Peter is showing us in these 12 verses that because we are born again to this living hope through the finished work of Christ, we praise him eagerly and steadfastly. I'll say that again. It's because we are born again to this living hope. It's, it's not a command. It's a natural sort of uh, reflection of this uh, like just amazing truth that we, just, we, we return it with praise and rejoice in the Lord. And so when you look at verse three and it says, um, it says that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's kind of, that's kind of the thesis, I would say. That's kind of his, his starting point. And then you can look at everything else as just sort of a long blessing from Peter to God. It's an encouragement and it's a blessing and it's praise. And so we can kind of break these up into three separate categories, um, three different ways uh, or reasons to praise God. And um, those are the promise of salvation, the spiritual refinement of trials, and the revelation of the gospel. And we'll look at all three of those things individually. But first, let's take a step back a little bit and let's look at this book since we're going to be kind of going through it for the next, I don't know, nine or ten weeks or something like that. Um, So we kind of want to know what's going on. Well, the first word of the first verse of the first chapter of 1 Peter says Peter, and that just tells us who the author is. This is the apostle Simon Peter, the very 
Peter who walked with Jesus, who learned from Jesus, who was friends with Jesus, who wept with Jesus, who was personally, uh, who had a personal relationship with Jesus. He was his friend. And it says that it's to the elect exiles of the dispersion. The elect exiles of the dispersion. Some of your Bibles may say sojourners. And I actually like that a little bit better, honestly, because exile sort of implies this idea that these people uh, have been um, removed from this place that they have been living their whole lives. But while that may be true for some of them, that's actually not, uh, that's not the point that it's trying to make. Right? When it says these elect exiles... First of all, elect, that means that these are Christians. These are God's chosen people. And when it says exiles it's, or sojourners, it's referring in a very heavenly term to these people as, as being someplace that they just don't belong. So these people in uh, modern-day Turkey might have lived there their whole lives, but they're not at their true home, which is in heaven with Christ. So... Similarly, as Christians, we are elect exiles, I suppose, sojourners on this planet, this place. Look at verse 2. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The very purpose of this book is to be an encouragement it's to be uh, an encouragement for perseverance, for faithfulness to Christ, and for full submission to the Lord, regardless of circumstances. And a heavy theme that we'll be kind of looking at is this idea of persecution. He talks about persecution a lot. When we start talking about trials, we'll see kind of some wording around this. And I think it's important to kind of uh, make it known that when a lot of times we talk about persecution, especially biblical uh, context for persecution, we a lot of times think of, um, you know, people being beheaded, people being stoned, people being martyred. Peter himself was um, crucified upside down, right? We think about all these crazy sort of persecutions from the ancient Roman Empire, from the actual government that was persecuting Christians. But that actually didn't quite happen till a few years after this. And so um, I think what makes First Peter such an interesting um, book is that this persecution he's kind of talking about is maybe a little bit more relatable, because here in America, we have the blessing to have a country that is, uh, allows for freedom of religion. We haven't faced any official government persecution for being Christians. But maybe, maybe some scoffing, maybe some people who might hate you for what you believe or simply being made fun of around friend groups. Right, and so I'm sure there was... Uh, terrible things happening to these people, but, but ultimately the persecution, when we think of persecution, think more in terms of some of those things, which is still persecution. Look back down with me at verse 3. three. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like I said, this is sort of the opening statement. This is kind of the, uh, the, the, the drive for the rest of this, uh, this passage. This living hope, he, 
Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then the rest of this is what follows from that. So let's look at verse four. Resurrected from Christ, from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When we talk about salvation, it can be kind of a confusing term. Um, a lot of times people describe it as the already and the not yet. Right? I can say that I was saved about five years ago when Christ kind of came into my heart. I came into a full understanding of the gospel and, um, and I came to a saving faith. I can say I was saved. But also in the not yet, as in I'm not with Christ yet. I'm not in heaven. I haven't reached salvation yet. And so uh, the, the main difference being that when you come to a saving faith, you could say that you, you have escaped sin's dominion over you. You have power over sin. But the not yet implies that not only have you escaped sin's dominion, but you, you have escaped its presence. And so more so be thinking in that, uh, that, that not yet sort of terms when we talk about this inheritance. Being born again is the already, and then this inheritance, um, this living hope that we look forward to is kind of the not yet. And I love these words that he uses. Verse five, look there again, or sorry, uh, verse four, these words that he used to describe this heavenly inheritance that is ours, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. These are three things that our heavenly inheritance is not. It's not perishable, it's not defiled, and it's not fading. Imperishable, imperishable basically just means that it doesn't go away. It can't die, right? This, this very word is used to describe God in different parts of the New Testament. It's used to describe the, the new heavens and the new earth. It's used to describe um, God's very word, which we know is everlasting. It doesn't go away. Undefiled simply means tainted by sin. And of course, if a heavenly inheritance is not in the presence of sin, then it cannot be tainted by sin. And unfading. Unfading is a word that James uses to describe the flowers and the grass that fade away when scorched by the sun. The best way I like to think about it is anything materialistic. It's unfading. So I like to think about just the comparison between this sort of inheritance and you look at the first five books of the entire Bible, right? You see the Exodus story and you see how sort of uh, uh, this very similar language was used for them. Their whole hope was in this future inheritance, which was the promised land, right? Escaped from slavery, led by Moses through the power of God, the Israelites had their hope in this idea of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And I mean, you can look at so many similarities. You can look at how uh, just like we were once dead to sin, we were once slaves to sin, they're slaves to the Egyptians. Then they broke free from that and they were sojourners in the wasteland, just like we are sojourners here on this planet, eventually to arrive at their inheritance in the promised land, just as we eventually arrive at our inheritance 
with Christ in heaven. But the thing that's so special about this comparison is it's so clear that our inheritance is so much better. And if you don't believe me, then look at those words again, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You can't say that about their inheritance of the promised land. Imperishable, I'm pretty sure, man, I'm pretty sure that... um, that, that that promised land got overtaken and, and torn down like 17 times. I'm pretty sure that, um, that, that right when they got there, you read through the Old Testament, right when they got there, immediately sin. After sin, after sin, after sin. It was completely defiled. And ultimately, this place is made of stone. It's made of whatever brick or whatever they, you know, they had all their earthly possessions And so it's fading. Our inheritance is better. And you can say this about anything, anything, because everything here is tainted from the fall. Everything here is a dying hope. So if you put all of your existence into something of this world, you will not find joy. In other words, if you expect fulfillment from this life, it will steal your joy. However, if your hope is in Christ alone and you count everything in this life as a blessing that you don't actually deserve, then this life can steal nothing from you. Look down with me at verse 5 one more time. Right, This, this living hope that, uh, that is given to us us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Take a pause, look there. By God's power are being guarded through faith. This is a military term, guarded by God's power. The brokenness of this world has shown us time and time again, fathers who reject their children. Listen, if you are in Christ, there is no such thing. If you have accepted Christ into your heart, if you are truly one of his children, then there is no being cast out. There is no replacement. There is is no one who can take this reward. At the end of verse four, when it says, kept in heaven for you, Right? He's not using a collective term here. He's not saying for us, us as just kind of Christians together. Like, no, he says for you. This is a personal thing. If you are in Christ, you will never be cast out. Because when we are weak, he is strong. So what does this future hope mean? It means that as Christians, we get to look forward to the mercy of being completely relieved from all of misery. And therefore, we praise God because we have a future heavenly inheritance. Look at verse six. It says, in this you rejoice. Right, Everything we just talked about and this being born again to a living hope and, and, and this heavenly inheritance that we look forward to, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, for a little while, don't get your hopes up. That might make you, uh, that might make you kind of think, okay, a little while typically means a few days, a couple weeks or something like that. That's about how long trials last, you know, if I kind of took an average. But um, similarly to his kind of uh, language in the first verse, this little while is referring to your entire life. This is not an easy life. But in comparison to future eternity with God, it is most definitely fair to describe it as a little while. He says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Listen, God does not try his people without reason. Right? Think of Karate Kid, the old one, not the new one, not the Jane Smith one. I guess they both work, but um, what's his name? Mr. Miyagi, right? Yeah. You think of when he's training daniel son, <laughs> right? He's saying, wax on, wax off. And what is Daniel saying? He's like, dude, you're not actually training me to, to know karate. You're teaching me how to wax your floors just because you want to wax your floors. You just want your floors waxed. This is free uh, labor, you don't actually care about me learning karate. You're just kind of looking at, uh, for, you just like to see me suffer and you just want your floors waxed. This is a completely personal game for you. And although Mr. Miyagi is no doubtedly a mischievous man, I'm willing to bet you that his goal wasn't just to see Daniel suffer but it was to see the strength that would come from this, right? We learn later on in the film that when he's waxing on, waxing off, he's actually teaching him how to, you know, kind of put this stuff ingrained into his brain so that when he actually gets to the real fights, he knows what he's doing. So he's not looking to watch him suffer. He's training him so that when the real challenge comes, he's ready. James 1, 2, if you want to flip over one page, you don't have to though. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Very similar language here. Right? And there's this idea of of this refining metal in verse uh, 7. Right? When he says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. When you're refining metal, you're blazing it in a furnace, especially gold. They're just trying to right, use imagery to, uh, to kind of portray the most valuable thing on earth. Right? You're blasting it in a furnace. And so ultimately, when you pull it out, after all that heat has been on it, it's more valuable and it's more pure. And it says that our faith is much more valuable than this. And maybe you're going through a difficult trial right now. Maybe you haven't 
ever gone through a difficult trial. I promise you, you will. And so when you do, recall your living hope. Recall this hope that, that has caused this joy, that has caused these people who are suffering through trials to rejoice. You may be thinking, you don't understand, though. You didn't watch the divorce that I just watched go down. You didn't watch uh, this person who I just kind of poured my entire everything out to reject me. You didn't, you didn't like, have this sort of tragedy or this family experience, this tragedy go down like I did. Or you don't know what I'm dealing with in secret. You don't know the things that I haven't told anyone because I'm afraid of being cast out. Because I'm afraid of being judged. And though we don't necessarily always understand a specific reason for a trial or a period of suffering, if you look at um, the end of verse 7, talking about he says may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at revelation of jesus christ how could these things lead to praise how i mean they're literally sometimes it seems like there's no point in a trial other than it just seems like you know it's pain and so if god is the one kind of putting these things in my life and this if this is supposed to be for some sort of refinement i don't see it and that's okay a lot of times when you look in hindsight as something, you can see the reason that it was put in your life. You can see the growth that stemmed from there, but sometimes you can't. And especially when you're in the midst of something, it's so hard to see. And though we do not understand a specific reason for a trial or a period of suffering, we trust that God is working all things according to his will. And we actually have assurance here in First Peter verse 7, that we will undoubtedly be glorifying him when these things are revealed. That's part of that future hope. When these things are revealed, that's in reference to the second coming of Christ. That's in reference to when you're face to face with Christ. When these things are revealed, when, when this whole grand scheme and, and the, everything that was kind of worked into your life and, and the whole reason for all these things has been revealed to you, this is a promise that it will lead to praise and glory to God. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, once you love to receive this letter of encouragement from Peter to you. He's saying, though you don't see him, you love him. How, how, how could he know that? How, how could you possibly love something without seeing it? Or how could you possibly be filled with a joy from something that you don't see? And how could you know that someone is filled with a joy of something that they don't see? Prayer. Worship, 
reading of God's word. He's saying, though you are going through these things, though you're experiencing trials, you love Christ. It's, it's abundantly clear. So if you didn't get anything from that, just understand this. That the trials in a Christian life are purposeful and valuable for the refinement of your faith. Purposeful and valuable. And therefore, we praise God for the refinement of our faith through trials. Down with me at verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, right, this future living hope that you're so overjoyed about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit set from heaven, things which angels long to look. A lot of talk about prophecy. I would like to direct your attention to episode one of Star Wars when it's revealed that this sort of chosen one would bring balance to the force. The chronological first episode of Star Wars. And what happens? I mean, these people, they're, they're looking for this sort of character who's supposed to kind of bring balance to everything. He's kind of supposed to sustain everything. They think it's Anakin. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not Anakin. Anakin ends up, uh, you know, kind of leaving the, everything in darkness, right? And then spoiler, spoiler alert, turns out that a generation later, his son, Luke, ends up being the chosen one that was prophesied. And that's when it all of a sudden was revealed to them that this is sort of the one who brings balance to the force. It wasn't until much later. All that to make the point that when it says that these guys, the Old Testament prophets, were uh, inquiring, they were seeking, they were searching. Man, I think that these guys, they had an understanding of how glorious this full sort of plan was. I mean, they... they they were told, they were prophesying about literally this, uh, this Messiah that was going to come and it was going to redeem everybody. It was going to save everybody from their sins. I mean, yeah, they weren't just kind of sitting around waiting for this to happen. People were searching. This was something that once Jesus kind of came and revealed himself as the Messiah, that was big news. People weren't like, wait, what's the Messiah? They were inquiring and searching So just try to grasp the weight of how amazing it is that to us it has been revealed. What has been revealed? The full story. That while we were still sinners, Christ condescended into the flesh, lived a perfect and sinless life, deserving, the only one deserving of heaven, willingly walked to the cross where he gave up his life, took on the full wrath of God that was ours to take 
And in our place, he died for us. Why? So that we may have eternal salvation with the Lord, which is our living hope. Full circle, right? The Old Testament people, they put their hope in a promised land. They even put their hope in a future Messiah. We have seen it. We have seen it displayed on a cross. And that is deserving of absolute rejoicing. It's so easy to hear these words or to even speak them sometimes without grasping their intensity. Doug Wilson has a little analogy about this idea of, um, of you have this exam that you got to take. It's a really tough exam. And some works-based sects of Christianity and all other religions will kind of have the teacher comes to you and says, uh, just gives really good advice, right? Well, make sure you study hard. Okay, make sure you take some deep breaths before the questions. Make sure you uh, use the process of elimination to knock out the ones that you know how to do and then come back and do the ones that you don't know how to do. But he says that Christians, however, the teacher walks right up to you, asks you to stand up from your seat, then sits down and takes the test for you. So understanding that this is good news, not just good advice, is what makes it so beautiful that this has all been revealed to us. It's a beautiful image of redemption and salvation that is fully displayed to us. Look at the last line. Things which angels in their heavenly sinlessness long to look at. And therefore, we praise God for the revelation of the gospel. What an absolute privilege it is to have the gospel. So many of you have grown up in the church and uh, at some point probably feel the sense of repetition. Maybe some of these words, Christ on the cross died for our sins. They don't mean as much the thousandth time around. And maybe, especially from someone only a few years older than you, maybe you're only half paying attention. I don't know. But listen, I can't command you to be joyful. Verse, look at verse 6 again. He says, in this you rejoice. He's not saying, in this, rejoice. Right? He's not telling them to rejoice. He's saying, in this you rejoice. It is natural You know these things, and therefore you will rejoice. You are rejoicing. True joy stems from a legitimate understanding of these truths. So ask yourself, are you finding yourself complacent in your faith? Do you feel lost, pain, or overwhelmed with anxiety? I would encourage you to revisit your foundation Look to Christ who has plucked you out of death by grace, bled, and took the wrath of God for you. I encourage you to uh, uh, revisit these things because it's so important. 
to understand the weight of all of this. Because once you understand this living hope and its beauty, it will naturally lead to joyful praise to the Lord. And we've looked at those three things to be praising God for. Our heavenly inheritance, the fact that trials are, pur- are purposeful, and that um, I love that song that Bryce played, the sovereign over us, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. The refinement of our faith through those trials. And lastly, the revelation of the gospel. So rejoice in this truth that you can rest in, this truth that was displayed on the cross, and this truth that even the angels are longing to look at. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have caused us to be born again into a living hope, not a dying hope or a fading hope, but an ever-expanding hope that produces joy. Lord, I pray that these things would resonate on our hearts. Would you uh, help our minds to be solely focused on you? Would you help us to revisit the foundational understanding of the cross and what it meant that Christ came and died for our sins, Lord? Would we look to this to be our ultimate joy? And would we give you all the praise and glory and honor that you deserve? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.